The Homeland Security Department has been preparing for the new executive order on artificial intelligence President Joe Biden signed earlier this week for the better part of the last year. One big step came last month when Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas named Eric Heisen, the agency's chief information officer, as the first chief AI officer. Heisen tells executive editor Jason Miller at the ELC 2023 conference in Hershey, Pennsylvania yesterday about why this change and several new policies are part of how DHS is preparing for AI today and in the future. I expect that uh, over time, the percentage of IT that we manage at DHS, that any uh, large uh, enterprise manages that uses AI will only grow and will approach uh, 100% in various forms. And so uh, effectively and responsibly leveraging AI is going to become a critical part of any IT organization uh, moving forward. And so we are focused on um, being able to build out procedures that ensure that our use of AI across DHS is safe, ethical, responsible, and effective, that we are rigorously testing to ensure that our uses of AI do not demonstrate unintended bias, uh, and that our uh, AI use is explainable to the people uh, that we serve. That's something that we're doing in close partnership with our Office for Civil Rights and Civil Liberties, our Privacy Office, uh, our General Counsel, and many others across the department. And uh, we are doing that in a uh, methodical way. A couple of weeks ago, we released two key foundational policies. The first was a policy statement on our overall principles for responsible AI use from the secretary that will underpin all of our work in this space. And then we are going to be following up on that with different policies that implement those principles for specific types of AI. So the first one uh, of those that we released concurrently was on our use of facial recognition and face matching. And we set out uh, very clear procedures for testing uses of facial recognition before we deploy them that include uh, rigorous testing against unintended bias uh, and also put in place some operational limitations, such as that we are not going to use facial recognition matches as the sole basis for denying a benefit or taking a law enforcement action. Uh, And so we're going through a similar process now for generative AI and for other types of AI technologies to ensure that we are put, uh, going to be uh, using them responsibly across DHS. When you talk about generative AI, I know that has been a big issue looking across government. Several agencies have put out policies that said, don't use it until further notice. Others said, use it very judiciously. How are you looking at this for now? At a, I know it's still in, in, in the works, but maybe from a high level. I view, and I think across DHS, we view that we need to give our employees the tools they need to do their jobs. Our workforce is incredibly talented, incredibly passionate, and the workload that we have across DHS only gets larger every single day. Uh, When you look over the last several years, the number of new challenges that our workforce has taken on uh, is truly incredible. And so when we see a technology that has the potential to make our workforce more productive, we're going to uh, seize that. Uh, But we're going to do that in a uh, deliberate and appropriate way. So uh, we're still finalizing our, our exact policies, but they will look like what is encouraged in President Biden's executive order that was recently signed that talks about 
the importance of uh, training for our workforce uh, on how to use AI systems uh, that talks about policies and procedures around what information you can and can't put into these systems and then ensuring uh, appropriate human review of those outputs. I know more is coming on that, so we will obviously follow up when when the, the time is right. Let's take a bigger step back. We know that the AI executive order came out just recently, and there was a fact sheet put up by DHS about their input that were there, some of the work you'll be doing to help support that implementation. That falls to you, I'm sure, more plates to spin, if you will. What are some of those priorities that, as you're looking at the implementation? Where's What's the role DHS will play around the EO? We have two primary roles uh, around AI at the department. Uh, the first is how we will harness AI to transform our own operations. Uh, this is something that Secretary Mayorkas is incredibly passionate about. And he was playing around with uh, some of these new AI tools before I even got my hands on them and uh, has been very eager to see us fully leverage the technology to, uh, to improve everything from how we uh, keep uh, fentanyl and other dangerous drugs out of the country to how we uh, streamline getting disaster assistance to survivors that need it and, and much, much more. So there is uh, a major focus through our AI task force that I co-chair along with our Undersecretary for Science and Technology, Dmitry Kuznetsov, on identifying and accelerating critical uses of AI to support our mission. And then our second role in this space is promoting and ensuring nationwide AI safety and security. We have a lot of work that we've been charged with under the executive order, including partnering with critical infrastructure to ensure that their use of AI is responsible and secure. Uh, that will involve standing up a new AI safety and security board that builds off the tremendous success that our um, cyber safety review board uh, has had uh, in the last couple of years. It also involves ensuring that AI cannot be used to generate threat information on weapons of mass destruction or bioweapons, work that makes it even more critical that our Office of Countering Weapons of Mass Destruction is reauthorized by Congress uh, urgently, and ensuring that AI cannot be used to generate child sexual abuse material and other uh, information that threatens homeland security. So we'll be partnering with industry uh, and experts to uh, advance those discussions. Uh, and then finally, it looks at promoting cybersecurity in the AI space uh, overall, work that extends uh, what CISA has uh, been doing incredibly well uh, since it stood up, uh, and uh, which Director Easterly is, uh, I believe, today on her way out to uh, London to discuss as part of the uh, U.S. delegation to the AI Safety Summit there. The training of the workforce piece, let me start there because... No matter how good the tools are, as you know, if you can't use them well, it doesn't matter. What are some of those steps you have been or are planning to take around ensuring the workforce has some basic knowledge? You heard Guy Cavallo from OPM say he, you know, at the very least, he said everyone take the 101 course. Imagine you're doing something similar. We're looking at AI training for our workforce in two ways. The first is how we train our IT professionals uh, across the department are over 5,000 throughout DHS to uh, be able to build skills in AI, data science, and related fields to manage software acquisitions and other complex work in this space. And that'll be done as part of the new uh, IT academy that we are standing up across DHS. The second is around AI literacy for the 
entire DHS workforce. So we are uh, still in the early stages, but looking to offer AI literacy training to every DHS employee so that they can understand how to use AI systems effectively. Uh, They can understand risks posed by uh, unintended bias or hallucinations uh, and know uh, how they should be thinking about using the outputs from AI in their work. Tell me just a little bit more about the uh, new IT Academy you're standing up. It's been a uh, focus of our uh, DHS CIO council over the last 18 months that where we are looking to build out more programming uh, for our entire IT workforce to develop new skills. We're looking at uh, three different areas. The first is that uh, early next year we'll be rolling out a standard new hire orientation program for all new IT employees anywhere at DHS. Uh, this is something that uh, is actually an idea that I have, I've stolen from our, our CFO, Stacey Marcott, who runs this for all new CFO employees in the department. Uh, it helps build from early on a sense of cohesion among the workforce. The second is that we are uh, looking at a standardizing an entry-level program that's uh, a part of our uh, DHS cybersecurity service or cyber talent management system to uh, be able to have a standard curriculum for uh, entry-level employees to learn about different IT fields and uh, be able to uh, start their careers off impactfully at the department. And then finally, we're looking at ongoing educational programs uh, and offerings for all employees to build new skills in fields like AI and data science, customer experience and design and the like. That's Eric Heisen, who is the Homeland Security Department's Chief Information Officer and Chief Artificial Intelligence Officer, speaking with Federal News Network Executive Editor Jason Miller. You can find more of Jason's reporting on this topic at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. 
So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on 
on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor and I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years and I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program, she even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people and even your title, Chief People Officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, 
I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. 
Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.